Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Hey everybody, welcome to Central. Great to see you. I want to begin uh, this morning by sharing a bit of news with you, giving you an update. If uh, rather than sing, you read the lead team notes, you're, you're already uh, tracking. So uh, let me share it with the rest of you who sung. Uh, um, we have spent uh, a lot of time here at Central focusing on, especially as leaders in this place, on our mission, which is that we exist to be authentic followers of Jesus who lead others to follow him and constantly evaluating. So what does that mean? What does that look like? If, if that's essentially the great commission that we're to go and make disciples, how are we called to do that in this place and time who God's called us to be and constantly asking that question? Our lead team in June before breaking for the summer um, we're working through some of our, you know, ideal five-year planning and just a- asking vision questions and trying to draw some conclusions of where we sense the Lord leading. And at that time, we acknowledged, hey, we're, God brought along this Agassiz campus opportunity. We really sensed the Lord in that, launched a campus in Agassiz. God has done fruitful work there. We recognize that we're multi-campus and we don't see a reason why we would stop it too. That said, in June, we claimed we don't know when we are maybe supposed to add a campus or where. And because we don't know those things, we'll simply give that to prayer, but recognize we're multi-campus and God may want to do something more with that. So we break for summer, but a few weeks after that meeting, I got a call from Rob Thiessen, who's our conference minister at the BC Mennonite Brethren Conference office. And he said, "Um, would you be willing to take on a church that, that needs some revitalization? And so after our conversation in June, that seemed worth listening to and exploring. And so we began to pray about that. Uh, But the ball was very much in the court of this church called North Fraser. It's in Lake Iraq, which is between Agassiz and Mission. It's actually the only church in the region, in the area. There is not another church in that area. And it's a growing area. And there's lots of First Nations communities there as well. So there's plenty of gospel opportunity. But we began to pray about it and seek the Lord about it, but recognize the ball was in this church's court. Um, This remnant of people that were there were looking for strong leadership, gospel preaching, and a witness, a presence in that area for Jesus. And and, um, so they've spent a lot of time working through that. The MB Conference has been working with them. And and just a couple of weeks ago, um, Rob Thiessen led them in a, a real conversation about if that was a direction that they wanted to move, and they agreed that it was, in, in other words, to become a campus of Central Community Church. So then all of a sudden, the ball, after months, had come in our court. And so as a lead team, we met on Tuesday night, had been praying, um, obviously, for months and week, the weeks ahead, um, and, um, and, and sensed that the Lord may be in this. We talked about some of the open doors and, and that it was worth exploring and had risk and may not be a glowing success, may or may not, but recognize that the fact that we exist to make disciples who make disciples, we thought if people could be reached through this opportunity, this is worth exploring. Okay, so press pause on that. Also, in recent months, we've recognized something going on in children's ministry, which is really perplexing. 
which is that over the last three years, we've grown, I'm talking about zero to 10-year-olds, by an average of 17% over the last three years. 17%, 17%, 17%, meaning that our children's ministry has more than doubled in size in three years on a weekly basis, zero to 10-year-olds. And we have, at this point, maxed out our children's ministry wing. So where the kids flooded out and all the preschoolers and toddlers and nursery were already out, we are maxed out on that side of the building right now. That's what's going on. And so if we desire or we see a pattern of the Lord's growth among us, we recognize that we actually don't have the capacity this year to grow by 17%. Can't happen. We are quickly becoming an inhospitable place to new young families because it feels maxed. I don't know if I can put my child in this room. This is full already, right? And we actually have a ratio thing going. Some of the little children might even be in the room right now or in an overflow space. What's really weird about what's happening here at Central is that we have the number of children in our ministry. We should have over a thousand adults for the number of kids we have. We have over 600 adults, and we have about 300 kids. So it's a third of our church are zero to 10-year-olds, and they must be incredible givers because we've actually just grown our giving in the last three years as well. It's super weird. Some of the four-year-olds right now are like writing checks, just like, (laughs) I need an usher in the nursery. I don't know what's going on, but we're growing in our giving, we're growing in our children, and we're slightly growing in adults. That's what's happening among us. And so we've been asking the question at the lead team, do we do a $2 million expansion here. But we came back to the conversation. We're a multi-campus church. What if there's another opportunity? So we've been exploring that. We're exploring the idea of planting a campus on Promontory Hill where a church presently isn't and hasn't been for years. Recognizing that that hill is quickly getting enveloped with homes and it continues to expand and expand and expand and there's an opportunity to be a campus up there, meaning that having a campus across town would mean this we would be asking a lot of our congregation of families and individuals, but praying that a number of families, if this is where God would lead us, would leave here to go be a part of a core team there and bring at least 50 children from here (laughs) over there. And by doing that, we would free up space here, which is a logistical thing, which is great. But it would provide a missional opportunity that we wouldn't otherwise have on the hill, trying to reach Promontory Hill in a specific way for Jesus. And so um, this is bold, um, and this is, uh, quite frankly, really big vision, um, that we might grow from two to four campuses within a year um, is a big deal. Um, The reason I say we're exploring these things, because here's what's not helpful um, we recognize as leaders in this place, it's, it's not actually going to go well if we say, all right, everybody, we're going from two to four, let's go. What will go well is that we bring this before you and say, are you sensing the Lord in this too? Because if we are to do such a crazy thing, the Lord has to meet us in it and the church as a whole has to say, God is in this, I am in this. Because we need core teams in two places. We need giving that is above and beyond what giving is. We want to reach people and pray for salvations ahead of time. And all of that needs to be the heartbeat of our church as a family, not as a few. And so what I'm asking of you today is this. Um, 
we, we'd invite you if you want to hear more about this and, and have a space to um, speak into it as well, we'd invite you to come on April 23rd to a vision night where we can explore more of this, talk about more details, I talk about some of the doors God's opening, some of the challenges it would bring, all of that. Um, invite you April 23rd, um, time isn't set yet, something around 7 p.m., April 23rd, Sunday night. Um, and in the meantime, invite you to pray. If you're super excited about this right here today, give it to God in prayer. Bring that excitement to him. Lord, what are you doing? Do you want me to be a part of this? Do you want us to be a part of this? If you're skeptical, if you think it's a terrible idea, I invite you to pray over the next number of weeks. Because sometimes the Lord changes our hearts, might change our heart, might, change, might close doors, might open doors, but we invite all, no matter what you're sensing, please pray, bring it to the Lord. Talk about it in your life groups and, and, and then circle April 23rd in the evening on your calendar and, and try and be there. Would you do that? There weren't as many gasps as I thought there would be, but um, God is certainly moving among us. The goal is to be the kinds of people who bring Jesus fame by the costly discipleship that we are willing to give him. And so we're asking the question, Lord, is this what you're calling us to next? Let's pray about it, and then we'll get into the text this morning. Jesus, thank you for coming and exemplifying um, the perfect life, for paying the penalty for our sins by sacrificing your perfect life on the cross so that we would get grace, so that we would get salvation. Lord, thank you for your mercy, your kindness, for coming and reaching us with the gospel. Lord, we're constantly asking the question around here of how do we reach Chilliwack and Agassiz, and we're asking the question, how do we reach the eastern Fraser Valley and beyond with the gospel? And Lord, we want to be faithful where you are leading. I pray that you would make your leading clear in this moment, at this time, with what you have before us here. God, one of the ways that you speak is through the collective voice of your church, and we're, we're wanting to lean into this together. We're wanting the prophetic voice to come out. We're wanting to hear the wisdom of the body. Lord, I pray that you would help us um, communicate well, pray about this, and, and, uh, and bring it um, uh, before this church. God, we long to be on mission, to reach people for Jesus. Help us discern how and when. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 13. As you're turning there, I um, just want to give you a little, little window into my marriage, um, uh, one little aspect of it. This seems like a good place to do that. So, uh, I, I have found as I've been married to Emily for a number of years that I can kind of spook her by accident most of the time. Um, like come around the corner, ah, and she's freaked out, right? It's just, I caught her at a bad moment or whatever. She didn't think anyone was there, and I'd appear and freak her out. And we've talked about it over the years, and I, I know that I have that. Uh, I can use that. So once in a while, it's on purpose. But the conversation has come up like, and, and I, maybe I'm just trying to be macho or something, but I'm like, ah, you, like, you can't scare me. Like, it doesn't work the same way. You come around a corner, and I'm like, ah! it doesn't happen. And I was pretty confident about that until this last week, uh, <laughs> where Emily thought it'd be really funny to hide somewhere in our house and have her phone and record a reaction of me while she spooks me. 
It's like I'm not expecting her to pop out of the garage and go, ah! And, and like at night or stand in our pantry for 10 minutes waiting for the moment I open it. But she did it and she recorded it. And legitimately, yes, turns out she can freak me out. So there's a, there's a window into our sick, twisted marriage. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have, we're weird people. And so that's what we do, I guess. And, uh, but there's something about, you know, this idea that like, okay, things are a particular way. And we talk about it and we come to conclusions through talking about it. Actions are different, though. When it's actually played out, like, you, don't, you find out, ah, okay, this is what it's really like. And in this text this morning, we have this illustration that Jesus gives when he washes his disciples' feet, where he's already said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. He's said that already. But now he's doing things like washing feet, and he's showing through action this is why I came. This is what my ministry looks like. And it was all, of course, pointing to the cross, the greatest servanthood of all. And so well, let's look at this text. Um, it'll be in the first 17 verses of John 13. Let me start in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So before the illustration takes place, he's about to wash his disciples' feet. John wants to actually define some of this love of Christ. We're going to see it on display in the washing of feet, but he's telling us here first something about the love of Jesus. So let's talk for a minute about the perfect and everlasting love of Christ. There's a couple distinct things that we see about his love in this text. Having loved his own who were in the world, past and present, He's loved them. He's loving them present. He loved them to the end, future. There is this past, present, future love of Christ. Having loved those who were his own, his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But he's saying a couple things about this love of Christ. One is this love he has for his own. Jesus loved his own. God loves all people, all of humanity in some ways, like John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So he, he loves all in some ways, but we recognize here that he's loved his own in a particular way. So God loves his, not in some ways, but in every way and in particular ways. Look, I, I like kids. I particularly like my kids. I, I can put up with kids for a few minutes. I'm set to put up with my kids for many years. Like, that's just how it's going to work. And I particularly like them. They're little me's, which is really fun. And horrifying, obviously. Um, and then, in the same way, this, this loving of his own, this particular love, is, is that um, it's actually entirely appropriate. Because we'll say, well, that's unfair. Why does Jesus love some in these special ways? Well, Jesus has a bride, and it's the church. And it's entirely appropriate that Jesus would love, write love letters to his bride. Essentially, John 13 through 17, this road to the cross and what's going on in these next chapters, this is very much Jesus' love letter to his bride. It's entirely appropriate to write a love letter to your bride, and it, what's inappropriate is writing love letters to someone else's bride or to be a groom and write other women love letters there's an appropriate relationship that happens. Friendly contact with many people, sure, but the most intimate things belong between a husband and a wife in marriage. And so this is Jesus' love letter here to his bride, the church, his special people. And like in a marriage, it's fitting 
And it's even expected that he would have special, loving, tender words for her only. So he loved his own. He loved them to the end. This is the perfect and everlasting love of Christ for those who are his, for all who would turn to him in faith, for anyone in this gospel going out in all the world who would respond in faith. He loves his own and he loves them to the end. What end? Well, I think it would be too limiting to say one particular end. I think there's a few ends. He loved them to the end in that this, he's mere days, hours away from the cross. He loved them to the end. He saw it through. He not only took the road to the cross, he bore the cross. He was crucified on it. He loved them to the end. He loved them all the way to the cross. He also loved his disciples to the end of their lives. He saw them through. He loved them, and he loved them all the way till their dying breath. He loved them to the end of their lives. But life in Christ doesn't end there. It goes on for all eternity. He loved them to the end. He's loved us into glory. He's loved this, with this love that will last for all eternity. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Only Jesus loves with a perfect and everlasting love. This is the love of Jesus Christ. This is an incredible love, a love worth drawing you into, and believing and embracing, and coming to faith in and following Jesus in. So this is the love of Christ defined in a couple particular ways. And now we're going to look at this, the rest of this text, verses 2 through 17, and see it illustrated. See his love on display and what that looks like. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it in, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's now look at the love of Christ displayed through humble service. Can we just note in this text that Jesus, in this moment, was knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God. All God's glory, all God's ways, God the ruler over all creation had put everything of his into Christ's hands. And what does Jesus do when he's that rich in royalty, that powerful, that authoritative? What does he do with that? He dresses like a servant. He kneels down and washes dirty feet. That's what he does with his glory. And I want you to, many of you have heard this before many times. Yeah, Jesus washed their feet. Excellent. Great. Fantastic. That's a great display. But we need to understand culturally how significant this is. In Israel at this time, Foot washing was a task reserved for non-Jewish slaves. In other words, Jewish slaves in Israel, it was too beneath them to have to wash feet. For slaves, but Jewish slaves, too beneath them to have to wash feet. It was only reserved for non-Jewish slaves that they should have to give themselves to such a menial, degrading task. In fact, there's a story from around this time period of a high priest and um, the mother of the, the high priest at the time was so proud of her son 
and actually considered it. It would be such an honor for me to wash your feet. She's saying to her son, let me wash your feet. The high priest, I want to wash your feet as a display of my appreciation. And he says, no, mother, you will not wash my feet. It would be too degrading. He would not allow his mother to do it. In fact, Chris Thomas, a theologian, said there is no instance in either Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. How many instances, how many occurrences, how many documented times has this been done? There cannot be found one in all of antiquity, in all of Jewish and Greco-Roman sources of any superior anywhere washing the feet of an inferior. There's only one in the copies of Scripture that tell about Jesus of Nazareth washing his disciples' feet. What Jesus did was completely revolutionary, absolutely shocked his disciples. It was not normal. You do not do this. As you'll see, Peter's like, you won't wash my feet. Jesus is like, well, I, I need to, Peter, and you'll understand. What Jesus did was completely revolutionary. Not only was this act of foot washing um, <clears throat> a humble act of service that he calls us to emulate, which we'll talk about towards the end, In this act, Jesus gave us a dramatic illustration of his entire ministry. In the act of foot washing is a dramatic display, an illustration of the whole ministry of Jesus. So let me show that to you this morning. First, it says in verse 4 that he rose from supper. This is the first action in his illustration, and Jesus had already done this in a far greater way when he rose from his glorious throne in heaven to stoop down into the world to come and save us. Jesus had risen from his place before. He did it when he was seated on his throne in the heights of heaven where everything had been created through him and for him. And he rose from that position to descend, to stoop, to come and to save the lost. Jesus had risen from his seat before. It also says in verse 4 that he laid aside his outer garments Paul and uh, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians says that when he came into the world, he laid aside his glory so that he could appear as a true man and not blind people who looked upon him with his celestial glory. He laid aside his outer garments and he had already done this before as well. When descending from heaven to earth, from God taking on flesh, he, he let, set aside his glory that was so radiant that would keep him from being viewed by humanity. He, he, he took that off in a sense in order to become not only fully God, but also fully man. It's that incarnation that took place that's so significant. And what's happened in this is the reality that if he had not done that, if he had not done this humble act... He wouldn't have been able to come. Think about Moses on the mountain, and he's asking, Lord God, let me see your glory. And as God essentially lets him see where he had just passed by, and it was enough to make Moses' face shine brilliantly. Just having witnessed where God just was, the glory was so radiant that when he descended down the mountain, people couldn't look at Moses' face because Moses' face had seen where God was And his face is beaming, and they can't even look at his face because it's shining so brilliantly. So they cover his face until it settles. The glory It's crazy. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah comes before God. So often we pray prayers not even really knowing what we're thinking. God, show me your glory. Well, Isaiah was shown God's glory, and he fell flat on his face like he was dead. Like just like, like this is like it was too much. To see God's glory and all his radiance is not something that we can view. It's too holy. It's too wonderful. It's too pure. 
And Jesus, though, laid aside those outer garments of glory and descended to meet us in the mire. Next, he took a towel and tied it around his waist. This was the attire of a servant. He clothed himself for service. He took the posture of a servant first by dressing himself as a servant. Philippians 2.7 says Jesus took this role upon himself. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And here in this story, he took a towel and tied it around his waist. Next, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. A few hours later, he would pour out his blood for the washing away of our sins so we could be reconciled to God. And lastly, as we see in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he returned to his place. Just as he is now highly exalted, Jesus, when he had finished washing their feet, took his place again at the table. Jesus, having died a sinner's death that he didn't deserve, dying in our place, laying in the grave, raising back to life, he ascended on high, back to his glorious standing where he now intercedes on our behalf. Hebrews 1.3 put it this way, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, back, high and lifted up. Jesus, the Savior of the world. Not only was washing feet as someone over other people unheard of and revolutionary, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, what what the foot washing is illustrating was far more revolutionary and changes everything. Next, we see in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Let's see here now that the love of Christ washes and cleanses us from sin. What Jesus is saying just in really simple terms here is that if they've already had a bath, there's no need to have another one. They just needed the dirt washed from their feet that was kicked up during their walk to dinner. You're already clean. You already bathed. But you've walked and you've kicked up some dirt on your feet, so what you need now is just for your feet to be clean. That's all. Likewise, you only need to be born again once. We are born and we are born into depravity. We are born into sinfulness. We have a natural proclivity towards it. And yet when we are born again, when we come to faith in Jesus, when we turn to him in faith, we are born again. We are a new creation. He gives us new hearts. He changes us. And that happens. That is salvation. He in that moment justifies you. You are just, you are made right with God. He imputes the righteousness of Christ upon you so that when God looks upon you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's perfect righteousness. And yet the Christian still lives in this world, this side of heaven and is fallible and will sin and will be tempted and therefore will kick up some dirt on his feet. Though he is washed, though she is washed, will have some dirt kicked up on feet and will need to be cleansed again and again in terms of coming in 
um, repentance and faith and that posture of genuine repentance. First John 1 picks up on this where it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where there is genuine repentance, Jesus comes along and washes those sins away. Where for the first time you turn to him in faith, you are washed. You are become a new creation. And where you have given your life to Jesus and continue to sin, but turn to him in faith, his grace is there. He's taken the posture of a servant. He has come to wash your feet. There's grace overflowing to wash you, to wash you, to wash you. Judas, on the other hand, is also in the room. Jesus said in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. This reveals a couple of things. The first thing is, this is astounding that like, Judas is about to walk out the door to sell Jesus, um, to turn him over for 30 pieces of silver. He's about to betray Jesus. Like we're talking minutes, maybe an hour. And Jesus, he seems to have washed all the feet, washes his betrayer's feet. Astounding. What love. But it also shows that there's no rite, there's no ritual, even if performed by Jesus himself, that ensures spiritual cleansing. What this doesn't allow for uh, us is you can't just say a prayer and live a life unchanged and never actually turn towards God in faith and repentance the rest of your life. You can't just say a prayer and think it's good. That's just an act. That's just a ritual. That's just a rite. That's just a collection of words stated. That doesn't earn you any merit before God. Neither does baptism. Baptism is the sign of a believer that wants to make a proclamation, that wants to do the imagery of what God has already accomplished in the heart, a death to sin and a resurrection to new life in Christ. That's what's going on there. But simply to get baptized isn't to save you. That rite, that ritual doesn't gain you a thing. Neither is taking communion. There's no act. There's no ritual. There's some, um, there's some traditions actually that, 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 that make foot washing a, a sacrament like uh, baptism and communion. Make it a sacrament because there, there isn't a genuine instruction. Jesus says, do this likewise. You should also wash each other's feet. And so they take that and they say, well, look, we should wash each other's feet as a ritual, as a rite, as, as a sacrament. But, but that seems to be missing what Jesus is ultimately saying about a posture of a heart that with a humility, of servanthood that's being called for, of the model that Jesus lived, calling us to live that way. And what we tend to do is go, oh, I can just come up and do the little foot washing ceremony at the church. That makes me a foot washer. Let me wash someone's feet. But if the heart isn't changed, that, 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 that isn't what Jesus is ultimately after. See, Judas was washed that day, but he was not cleansed. His feet were washed, but he had never fully been cleansed. He had never fully trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation and turned to him in repentance and faith. He had not done it. And then meanwhile, there's Peter in the room who's like, you ain't washing my feet, Jesus. So he's got the humility to be like, you... There's no way that you, as great as you are, should wash my feet. He's got the humility to say that to Jesus, but the, but the uh, audacity to tell Jesus what he can and cannot do. That's Peter. You're not washing my feet. And then Jesus says, if I don't, then you won't have anything to do with me. And Peter's like, well, then, in that case, wash my whole body, Jesus. Like, wash my head, wash my hands, wash my feet. 
She's like, Peter, <laughs> you only need your feet cleansed. You've already had the bath. I know you believe. I know you've turned to me in faith. I know you've confessed me as Lord, as master of your life, as ruler over all things. I know that you have done that. You only need your feet cleaned. All of this bathing and foot washing is a picture of salvation, saving faith. What I don't want you to see here is right, some ritual that will make you right with God. That's not how he works. It's not how he comes. I want you in the, the, this act of foot washing to see the gospel, that those who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith will be washed, will be justified by faith, and continually cleansed from unrighteousness as we turn to him again and again and again for his lavish grace that is always available to those who are his, who have repentance, repented in faith and turn to him when we sin. His grace is sufficient. So a couple questions that naturally come from this text. Have you ever turned to Jesus in repentance and faith before? Have you turned to him in repentance and faith? Have you been washed and have you been cleansed? See, there's this invitation to be particularly loved by Jesus of those who are his. How do you do that? Well, you turn to him in faith and say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for the cross. I'm a sinner. Thank you that I can repent. Thank you that I can give that to you and you've already done. There's already good news. You already dealt with it and I can just give that to you and you will accept me. Have you ever turned to Jesus that way in repentance and faith? I plead with you to do that this morning. He loves you. Turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. He loves you. To those who have already done that, are you living a life of repentance? Do you live a life characterized by dependence on gospel grace? Living this pattern of striving to seek holiness, to pursue holiness in your life, to become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world, sanctification. God helps us in that. Part of the process is us continually living our lives, reflecting on our sin, repenting of it, asking for his grace, recognizing that he meets us there, and that's the pattern of our lives. Are you living a life of repentance, dependence on gospel? That's, that's the picture of foot washing. Come be cleansed by Jesus. His grace is sufficient. The cross paid it all. Come have your feet washed this morning, that kind of thing. Let's move on. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, verse 12, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's finally look at the love of Christ, the fact that it's the model for us to imitate. See, not only was this a dramatic illustration of the entire ministry of Jesus, he was also displaying what it is he sends his disciples out to do. You are to do likewise. Look what I've done for you. Do this for one another. He's modeling his ministry, and he's also showing us Follow my way of ministry. The heart of Jesus' command is this, humility and helpfulness toward brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the call. 
See, Jesus went low. He knelt and he served. And we are to go low and kneel and serve as well. We're called to it. Who do we worship in this church? We worship Jesus, right? We sing to Jesus. We pray to Jesus. He is to be celebrated. He is our king. He is our savior. He is our Lord, and he is the chief shepherd of the sheep, meaning he's the leader of the, of the church. He is the head, and we are the body. And what Jesus is saying here is, if I have served, and I'm the leader, I'm the head, I'm above, I'm the greatest, how can you be above any of the tasks that I've already done? See, in the gospel, Jesus is the one who left the heights of heaven. You can be no higher. You can be no more glorious. And he, he, he went lower than you and I will ever have to. He died a sinner's death upon the cross. He went from the highest heights to the lowest low. That's what Jesus did. And he's our leader. And he says, now do what I've done. Meaning that if, if the one who leads among us has done it, the boss, the greatest, how can those under him go, well, that task's beneath me? That task's beneath me. We can't. Jesus set us an example of humble servanthood that we are to emulate. When I first started here at Central a number of years ago, we started doing a young adults ministry on Wednesday nights. And at the time, um, the church was offering Alpha on Wednesday nights as well, which is kind of exploring faith in Jesus, uh, bringing your questions of faith and having them answered through some discipleship and training and, and just teaching about Jesus for people who don't yet know him or are new to the faith. And so that was going on at the same time. And I'd heard that Ron was a part of Alpha. I was my predecessor. He was a previous lead pastor here. And uh, I quickly understood what his role in Alpha was as our lead pastor. I had some assumptions about it, but I showed up on Wednesday nights to set things up for young adults. And I found Ron serving at Alpha, which was in the kitchen because they would serve a dinner at the beginning of Alpha and then in would come all the dirty dishes, and then they'd kind of go through the program. And Ron's part at Alpha was that he would grab those dirty dishes, put on an apron, stand at the sink, and wash the dishes for Alpha. That was how our lead pastor served at Alpha. And that's always struck me. In fact, every time I look at that sink in the kitchen, I think, Matt, there's no task beneath you. You're called to serve. You're called to dress to serve. There's no task that Christ would not do. There's no task that I would not do. There's no place of prominence here in this place for me that would keep me from doing the most menial of work in this place. To truly love this people, you, to truly serve this people. I look at that sink every once in a while and go, am I laying all of my pride down to love well in this place? It's a question I'm asking myself and I invite you to ask the same one. See, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It was unthinkable. It was a servant's role. He died on a cross. He died a criminal's death. And then he says in this act, do as I've done. Philippians 2, 7, again, says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in Mark 8, 34, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he should take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus takes on the posture and the dress of a servant and washes feet. Jesus died a criminal's death on a cross and he says, take up your cross, wash one another's feet. Jesus has shown us the model and that we are to emulate. So look, practically on the ground, here's a question. What keeps us from taking a lower role, you and me? 
What keeps us from taking a lower role, the lowest role? What keeps us from all clamoring to the lowest task around here? No, 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 no. Allow, allow me. No, no, no. I want to scrub the toilet. No, stop it. I will scrub the toilet. No, you will go and speak to the youth. I will scrub this toilet. Why are we not all clamoring to do that? We do it at home, all of us. Yeah, right? I think what keeps us from taking a lower role, from serving, from going low, is our prideful hearts. Mine and yours. See, our inclination, our proclivity is, ah, there's something here. I want to be served. Oh, look at this good thing. I hope I'm served. I want just waiting to be served on. I want to be served, not to serve. That's our proclivity. Everyone has a prideful heart that doesn't want to be humble and serve and take the lowest task and say, no, 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 that's not beneath me. That's not beneath me. There's this sense. There's this pride. There's this entitlement that comes along and says, that's beneath me. That's beneath me. That's not in my giftedness, which also happens to be really super rewarding and get lots of compliments from. Yeah, I, I, no, I shouldn't do something outside of my gifting. That's too, whatever. We spiritualize it, don't we? We use all the language. Uh, cleaning isn't my gift, so. <laughs> Talking to the homeless man, that's, that's, that's not my gift. There's people with that gift. They should, they should open their wallet. They should buy a meal. They should feed. Some people have the gift of passing food to someone who's hungry. I don't have that. Right? What keeps us from taking a lower role? Well, it's our prideful hearts. But Jesus, our King, humbly served. Therefore, it cannot be beneath us as his disciples to do the same. He's from higher and he went lower than any of us will ever be. Until glory when we meet him there. And we're called to do the same. We're called to follow after his example. C.J. Mahaney put it pointedly when he said, what's required is that you become a servant to others. It means nothing less than becoming the slave of everyone. It means turning upside down our entrenched worldly ideas on the definition of greatness. What we are called to in the church is you want to be first, right? You will be last. Right? You want to be prominent, you will be the greatest service, server of all. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's a counterculture. The church is meant to look distinct. And what does that distinctness look like here? It looks like a group of people that are clamoring for the lowest seat, the most menial work, any task that needs to get done, anything that comes our way that we say, Lord, how can I serve? How can it cost me personally? I'm willing, right? whatever that is whatever comes our way. We're called to that. Jesus doesn't only speak to servants here. Look in verse 16. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's talking about us all being servants. He's also talking about us all being messengers because we have the message of the gospel to share to the world around us. And the way that we do that is not through power, not through coercion, not through superiority, but through humble service. Jesus has shown us the way. The Apostle Paul caught on to this. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. That if I become a servant of all people, by serving them, some people might come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to serve everybody. And maybe some of the people that I serve will come to saving faith in Jesus. I'm just trusting that that's the way of Jesus. That's what he modeled. He said, wash each other's feet. Take up your cross. So I become the servant of all. Why? That some people might get saved by us being that kind of a counterculture. 
He goes on, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. One of the films this year that was nominated for Best Picture, not one of the ones that either accidentally received the reward or actually got it, but one of the other nominated films, Hacksaw Ridge, uh, is a true story about a man named Desmond Doss. This really happened in World War II. Um, Mennonites in our history are familiar with conscientious objectors saying, I will not take up a gun to kill. I won't be a part of wars like that. I will be a conscientious objector. That's in Mennonite history of pacifism or nonviolent resistance or, or um, conscientious objecting. Well, Desmond Doss was a little unique in that he would not take up a gun, but he wanted to be what he coined, what he called a conscientious contributor. That there are those who are taking life in this war, and I won't be a part of that, he said. But while others are taking life, I want to save it. And so he became a medic, and he went through all the rigors of training of all the other soldiers, but he would not touch a gun, and he was ridiculed for it because they're thinking, if I'm stuck beside you in a war and you don't have a gun, you're going to leave me to hang out to dry. But there he was without a gun as a medic and on this war at Hacksaw Ridge, as the battle was being fought, night came and the Americans retreated, but not Desmond Doss. He stayed there because there were many wounded soldiers on the battlefield and all night long he sought out these wounded soldiers, would grab them and pull them from the trench, bound up their wounds and then let them down this ridge towards safety. And he would do that again and again and again that night over and over and over again, every time whispering a prayer after each one, please, Lord, help me get one more. And off he would go and find a wounded person, a soldier in need who was going to face death and pulled them from the trenches and bound up their wounds and brought them to safety that their lives may be spared. And by the time morning had come, he was credited with saving 75 fellow soldiers on the battlefield. Please, Lord, help me get one more. That's the cry of the Apostle Paul. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Lord, one, as I go about this act of service here, help me get one more. As I go about this act of service over here, I know that this is so countercultural. No one else is doing this. But may you, in this action, in this humble service, save one more, Lord. Father Damien had that conviction. He was a Roman Catholic priest from Belgium, and he moved to Hawaii to minister to people. And you're thinking, smart man. I just I sense the Lord calling me to Hawaii to, to, to take up my cross and minister, preferably in Maui, right? Like all of that. Well, it sounds great, but it wasn't because he moved to Hawaii to minister to people with leprosy who were quarantined on the island of Molokai. He spent 16 years caring for the physical and spiritual needs of those in the leper colony. He dressed wounds. He built homes and beds. He built coffins and he dug graves. But his first course of action was starting a church where he preached for years and years. And one Sunday morning, he stood up at the pulpit and opened his robe to reveal the first signs of leprosy on his chest. And then he started his sermon in a way that he never had before. He said, We lepers... And in a letter to his brother in Europe, he wrote, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all for Jesus Christ. I'll make myself a leper 
so that I can preach the gospel and start it off by saying, we lepers, that I might gain some. I will not seek the prominent seat. I will seek the one of humble service for Christ. If you're anything like me, you always wonder, how can I possibly actually do that? I'll just be spent, right? It'll only last so long, I'll burn out. How do I humbly serve people as a posture in my life? How do I be a foot washer? I think we need to take a cue from C.S. Lewis here. He wrote this in Mere Christianity about loving your neighbor, especially when they're not great neighbors. And he said, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. In the same way, when we behave as humble servants, I'm just going to do it. Ask God to meet you in the task, and he will. He will give not only the strength to serve, but he'll actually give you joy in it because as you take on the posture of a servant, as a foot washer, as a cross bearer, you're actually fulfilling what God has called you to do in Jesus Christ, and he will meet you in that, and you will find far more joy there than you ever could have conceived of in being served over here. That's the way that the gospel works. That's the way the upside-down kingdom works. This counterculture is actually for your good. You will love it. You will come to find more joy serving than being served. And disciples do that. Can I give us an encouragement this morning? Let's be people of the towel. Dressed to serve. A counterculture that lay lives down for the body of Christ, for its good, for brother and sister, and for a world that needs such hope. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for stooping to save, for leaving the heights of heaven and washing feet, for bearing a cross and our sin upon it. Thank you, Jesus. And it is no small command that you say, wash one another's feet. Take on the posture of a servant. Become the servant of all. Take up your cross if you want to follow me. These are not easy commands, but Lord, they are your commands. And I pray for your mercy upon us. Lord, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit? Lord, would you defeat these proclivities in our heart where we desire to be the one served, not servants? And give us a heart that jumps at going to the least position taking up the task of serving. Oh God, would you more and more make us a people that way? So grateful, Lord, that you are and you will continue to do that. God, as we respond now in thankfulness, turning to you for the task ahead of us and asking for your help, and as the prayer team are available in other, all, all kinds of spots in the room, Lord, I pray that we would bring our burdens. I know there are many in the room. Bring them to a brother or sister and pray about it. Be prayed for. Bring our praises. Bring the people, the lost souls, those that we love, who are heavy on our hearts, and bring those names. And be prayed for this morning. Lord, would we respond and pray? And would we respond in praise 
for who you are and all that you've done and the mission that you have placed in front of us to accomplish through your strength. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.